Welcome to An Economist Goes to College, a podcast about the economics of picking and paying for college. I'm your host, Beth Akers, economist and senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm excited to have my friend, Barmak Nasirian, on the show today. Barmak is the Vice President for Higher Education Policy at Veterans Education Success. And previously, he worked at the American Association of State Colleges and Universities, where he was the Director of Federal Relations and Policy Analysis. Barmak has had a long career following the higher education policy space, and he's always had thoughtful analyses, which he pairs with a willingness and aptitude for engaging in debate. In fact, he's one of my favorite people to disagree with. In this episode, we're going to discuss what's happened with higher education in the wake of the big plans we heard about from Democrats, what hasn't happened, and what comes next. Barmak, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to it. Always fascinating to speak to somebody that I find to be my intellectual superior. (laughs) I don't know about that, but I also enjoy our conversation, so I'm thrilled to have you today. All right, Barmak, I want to start out by thinking about where we've come in the years that you have been following this conversation, because I've been reflecting on what's happened in the years that I have followed the conversation. And it seems just incredibly dramatic. There's a great video, or I guess a bad video of me from my Brookings days talking about the differences between the Obama and Romney platforms for higher education almost a decade ago now. And it's a bad video because I didn't have much to say. Higher education just was not a priority in national elections at that time. So where are we today? Where did this come from? Because we're obviously in a very different place. And how does that compare to the experience that you've had over the course of your career? Well, sadly for me, the course of my career goes back more than 30 years tracking (laughs) these issues. Maybe sad for you, but that's good for us because we get the insights. Well, you may get the insights, but you also get the policies that have evolved over that period for which I guess just as a participant in the system, I may be partially responsible. But your observation is correct. It used to be back in the even early 90s that higher education was almost a remnant of a bygone era in our politics, in the sense that really members of Congress did it out of noblesse oblige. There was no money in it. There was very little by way of contributions for anybody. And it really didn't drive any kind of electoral outcome for anybody, be they extremely supportive of higher education or be it that they didn't really think the federal government has much of a role. That has certainly changed over the years. And we have obviously devoted enormous amounts of money and tremendous amounts of attention at both congressional and administrative level to higher education. And, you know, I'm not sure that we have necessarily done so well, but yes, it has become very consequential politically and in terms of everyday lives of ordinary people. Right. And so, I mean, is this here to stay? Is this the new normal where you and I get to be part of the national policy discourse rather than part of this niche group that's talking about a policy that's not part of the national agenda? Or are we going to go back? Depends on how well we do our jobs. In general, Benign neglect tends to be a sign of a job well done, right? It's like your condo association. (laughs) When they are running it efficiently and doing a good job, you don't think about it. You get involved when things are dysfunctional 
And I think the level of attention that higher education is receiving, far from being a net positive, should really be seen as a warning sign that the public has decided to look under the hood, right? I mean, for too long, they delegated the policy process to quote-unquote experts, and experts have not really delivered on the promise of access and quality and affordability to the extent that the public would like. And consequently, they have decided to get in there and see if Amateur Hour does a better job. You observe, Barmak, that this is potentially driven by constituents saying something's wrong here and pushing politicians to pay this attention that has bubbled up into the debate that we have seen. But from my seat, it seems almost like this was a movement that was driven by politicians' concerns, you know, and I'm especially thinking of like Senator Warren and the progressive wing of the Democratic Party who have been pushing kind of these really big interventions. Is that an accurate characterization or you really do believe that it's the people who are concerned with what's happening in this space? Look, obviously it has something to do with your orientation on these issues. But in my way of thinking, folks like Senator Warren, people like Bernie Sanders, like AOC, are basically reflecting the public's dissatisfaction with technocratic solutions that have frankly not worked. And at that stage, they are sort of giving voice to the frustration that says, you know, all of this neoliberal means testing and targeting and the abracadabra that goes into the front end and the back end of the financing process needs to be thrown overboard in favor of utter simplicity. That's not a politician leading the public. That would not normally be something that most political figures could prevail on unless there was very broad public sentiment in favor of that kind of somewhat extreme, some would say radical solution. Well, now that brings me to my next question, which is, you know, what's most recently happened on the Hill is we have seen that Democrats are about to fail in getting their biggest initiatives into the reconciliation bill. So starting during the Democratic primary, we heard a lot about student loan cancellation. We heard a lot about free college. But as we're moving forward, those things seem to be dropping off. So what is that reflecting? So there's a great line in Livy, the Roman historian, where he says, Romans have reached a point when they can no longer suffer their vices or their cures. And in many ways, it seems to me like that's where we are politically in this country. There may be constructive solutions. From where I sit, I tend to think that the approach that the Democrats seem to be signaling, at least during the period nearest to the election and thereafter, was the right approach. I think we need some significant course correction here, but you're right. I mean, most of those things appear to be bridges too far at the moment. This basically means that we are left basically following the same course as we've been on now for better than 40 years, and that somehow we're hoping that the outcomes will be different this time around, when we have done this time and again, with the results being consistently ever-escalating tuition, the expansion of fraud, the diminution of academic quality, and a real crisis for millions of Americans who are having a hard time paying their student loans back. 
Well, I read a piece recently, I guess it was sort of a victory lap in a sense, because as you know, I've not been a fan of free college or student loan cancellation. And so, you know, I essentially said, hey, where we are now is that we're kicking this discussion back to the states, which is where it was prior to, I think, the Democratic primary leading up to the 2020 election cycle. And I wonder if you think that's the case, that that's what's going to happen. But also, I want you to comment on what's still happening at the federal level, because, you know, these headline issues are no longer being taken up on the Hill, but the agencies are working to address some of the challenges, at least on the margins through incremental change. So what do you think is going to happen there? So a couple of things. First of all, I think you have it right. Certainly, there is a significant role for the states. They could very well go back, some of them anyway to the sort of golden age of higher ed if they chose to to invest in it and create capacity, control quality, and produce the kind of output that they want to have for their state. This would be the way that we used to finance things prior to the sort of encroachment of the federal role and the, and the incredible expansion of the federal role in financing. Obviously, not every state is going to do that, but I think that is definitely a distinct path that at least some states may begin to explore. That's for sure. Now, with regard to the federal side of this thing, it is fairly clear that we're not going to get the kind of craftsmanship through legislation that could ideally kind of help us go from here to wherever it is that there is a political consensus to go. There is no political consensus. So we are basically left with what the department can do under a more sympathetic administration, which we do have. I do think this is a more sympathetic administration, whatever that means, you know, and I appreciate there are many different nuances to that, but, it, but I think it's fair to say that they value higher education, they value access, and they want to do something about the multiplicity of dysfunctions we're dealing with. They have, as you know, started a rulemaking process, which is ongoing now addressing a whole host of issues, some of which they're doing a fairly good job on. Barmak, pause for a second there, because some of our listeners won't know what a rulemaking process is. Can you describe what that means and the significance of rulemaking and policy and how it affects people's actual lives? Right. So when it comes to rulemaking, it's important to understand that as much as Congress has gotten into micromanaging policy, at the end of the day, there is only so much detail you can cram into legislation. Especially those legislation that no one reads before they pass, right? <laughs> well, that's true too. Not that it would make much difference either way, but the point is that there are significant details to any piece of legislation that have to be decided at the executive level so that agencies of the federal government have to get involved, and you do not want to have them get involved willy-nilly or in an arbitrary or capricious way, which means that to whatever extent there is discretion in the legislation, in the law that Congress passed, agencies go in and fill those details in through a very structured process, the Administrative Procedures Act, which in the case of higher education has an additional complication in that we don't just go through the agency writing a proposed set of regulations, publishing it and asking for written comments, which is the standard requirement. Before they can even do that, they have to actually go through a process by which they select various stakeholders involved in 
the particular policy arena and then hold actual negotiating sessions with them. I don't know that the format is necessarily the most helpful. I do think the interaction does improve the regulations because people can actually provide information that maybe the agency didn't think about when it was formulating its approach. We're going through that process now on a range of issues. Those issues include items that have been pending now for a number of years, the collapse of multiple institutions that have left students and taxpayers holding the bag, the fact that we have rampant fraud in certain sectors of higher education, people have been defrauded and need relief, aspects of legal participation in these programs and the federal student aid programs, and the extent to which there may be legal constraints on what participating providers may be able to impose on students. So those issues, I think the department is doing a fairly decent job with one proviso, one really important one, which is, (laughs) this is all triage after the disaster. It just strikes me as remarkable that here we are fine-tuning in good ways, admittedly, ways of helping people who have been defrauded or who will get defrauded. And it doesn't go through anybody's head that maybe, just maybe, we could do a better job of preventing fraud. So none of this becomes as significant in scope anyway, as it has proven to be. But they're doing a good job on that front. Where I have to tell you I have misgivings has to do with their efforts to address affordability of loan repayment. In my opinion, and I know you and I may actually differ on this, and you know that wouldn't be surprising, wouldn't be the first time, right? Right. In my opinion, we have put too heavy a foot on the pedal of debt financing of higher education. Even if you want to do this kind of debt financing, I think it is really critical that you put in some mechanisms to maintain price discipline. We don't have that. I'm not arguing for Nixonian price controls, but I am suggesting that a system that has no mechanism to control prices other than consumer price sensitivity, potentially, and that is, of course, significantly dulled by the easy availability of credit unlimited credit in some cases, right? Graduate and parent loans. So surprise, surprise, we see cost escalation. We see more and more borrowers in distress. We see millions of borrowers in default. And the real issue then becomes, what do we do about it? And it seems to me that the department, unfortunately, has sort of taken a tail wags the dog approach here. They're focusing on things that should be exceptions. It should be an exception that somebody goes to a school that collapses on their head. It should be an exception that somebody gets defrauded. It should be an exception that somebody does public low-wage public service and requires a public service loan forgiveness. The norm should be that people borrow money and repay it, primarily due to enhanced wages, in a manner that is affordable to them and realistic for the country. Right. Let me interrupt you there, though, because... You know, when I observe what's happening at the agency and what leadership we've seen in this issue from the White House, my interpretation is that this administration agrees more with me about student loans than they agree with you. And what I mean by that is, you know, fixing the way that these exceptional cases are treated. That's totally in line with my view that debt is a reasonable instrument for people to use and have to repay when they've borrowed to make an investment in themselves that pays dividends. 
And then you hear Biden out there talking about how he's not wanting to give loan forgiveness to people who went to these fancy colleges. And you've probably heard me say something similar to that too. So are they really failing to do what would be effective? Or are there actions that they're taking, you know, reflecting a different ideology than maybe the one that you have? There certainly is a difference in ideology, and ideology does very much influence what any observer views as a reasonable outcome, no question. But I think this is a pragmatic issue. This is an empirical issue. This should not be an ideological issue. We can have the ideological sort of icing on the cake, depending on your perspective, once the core sort of pragmatics are addressed. And the core pragmatics here are, and this may not be, by the way, the fault of higher ed, it may not be the fault of borrowers or students or academe, it could just be the nature of our macroeconomy that the labor market is changing because of globalization, because of the fact that we are no longer the kind of dominant economic power that we used to be, wages are not keeping up. It could be any number of those things. But I think it is an observable fact that we are not seeing the kind of wage enhancement that you would expect, certainly back before the 1970s by attending or participating or graduating from higher education. And the problem is that back then, if it didn't work out, well, you know, you didn't really have the issue of educational debt hanging over your head. You do now. And it seems to me that ignoring that and assuming that everybody who didn't get defrauded, who didn't go to a collapse school, who didn't go into public service is doing okay, is just empirically incorrect. And frankly, if the administration has concerns about people not going to fancy schools and financing it with debt, I would sign up for that. That is correct. That is a <laughs> yeah. good luck. Good luck given the entrenched interests that now bank on basically grabbing particularly traditional age students at age 17, 18, and putting them in much more debt, in my opinion, than the undergraduate experience should justify. But that's a different issue. It seems to me we really do need to ensure that even if you didn't fall into any of those exceptions, that you have an affordable repayment scheme that provides an exit for you to be able to afford housing for yourself, to feed your kids, to get married, to have kids in the first place. It seems to me that the educational debt overhang is now becoming a real social problem for us and a real economic problem for us. And that's something that doesn't matter your ideology. We probably don't want that. Well, you've heard me say things to the contrary of that many times over, so I won't necessarily repeat them here. But I think there's one aspect of that that I think is right. And it's that people are clearly unhappy with the status quo, right? So I can give you numbers all day that says people are only spending 4% of their monthly income on student loan repayment on average. And that's less than they spend on entertainment, blah, 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 these statistics. But there's clearly unrest with the system as it is. And maybe there's something to it that people are just, despite the economic sense behind the system, they're dissatisfied with the notion of having to leverage future earnings in order to make an investment in themselves when they're young. And, and so I think that's, that's a reasonable observation, if, even if we disagree on what makes it untenable. So let me ask you, we've heard a lot about public service loan forgiveness recently, the problems with that program. In fact, we talked about it on an earlier show. And some of the fixes that are happening at the agency level are addressing challenges with public service loan forgiveness. And then there's some other pieces as well. So what's getting fixed 
that will actually have an impact on students and what is still to come? Or what do you think is coming in terms of these marginal fixes that I know you believe are not enough, but what should we expect to see before this administration is up? I think they are attempting to address the process and the kind of operational side of what I view as an ill-conceived sort of Rube Goldberg framework that is just fundamentally flawed. You run into very significant philosophical and empirical problems. Does the fact that somebody practices nursing at a nonprofit venue necessarily mean that there is an income differential between that individual and this somebody, their classmate who happens to be employed by a for-profit entity? Should the bank teller at a nonprofit credit union receive a PSLF while the bank teller making probably not a whole lot more at a commercial bank does not? And you're talking about the way that PSLF is structured, for those who may not know, just that if you work at a nonprofit, you get these student loan cancellation benefits that are much more generous than if you worked in the private sector at a for-profit institution or organization. Right. So, right, the fairness of that program. I agree with you on that one. I've called that into question myself. Does that mean you're skeptical about the value of the fixes that we're seeing? No, I think the fixes are a belated attempt at retrofitting, as I said, a fundamentally flawed approach to policy. That flawed approach, you know, it's sort of like, forgive me, since I'm not an economist, you know, sort of like assume a fundamental premise and then everything else flows from it. If you assume that everybody working for nonprofits is making a lot less than everybody making for at for-profit entities, it becomes a really easy and attractive solution to say, oh, let's subsidize everybody who works at nonprofits. Well, you know, there are nonprofits where people are making very significant salaries and there are plenty of low-wage workers. I'm thinking of medical assistants. I'm thinking of orderlies who may work in a for-profit venue who are doing very important but low-wage work who really should be recognized for their hardship. But that's what Congress did. I think the administration is taking very significant steps to operationally improve the public service loan forgiveness program and to deliver on the promise that was made to people who have been making payments in some cases for longer than the 10 years they were supposed to. So that's a good thing. I honor that and I respect that and I'm very delighted with it. But I'm simply pointing out that ain't going to get you to where you want to go by itself. So we may not like the policy, but we both agree that you should actually implement the policy as it was stated so that we're not changing the rules of the game on people once they've already been engaged in it. Absolutely. Of course. All right. So there are these points of agreement, you know, that you and I have that are agreements across the aisle more generally in the space of higher ed reform. You know, the idea that PSLF is not really an efficient way of subsidizing public service. The fact that we've got dozen repayment programs, all of which have some different format of income-driven repayment, we all agree that's bad. So, you know, it was frustrating to me when we got the momentum on the movements of free college and student loan cancellation because I feel like those conversations disappeared. And despite the thoughtful commentary and agreement from people who spend their careers thinking about these things... Congress didn't pick it up and hasn't made any progress. Why is that? Well, again, it goes back to what Livy said. We are in a moment of paralysis in this country. Sadly, it seems to me that things have to get worse before they get better. You would think they're as bad as they could be, 
Well, if you don't think things are as bad as they could be, you should read my book. Yeah. Or you can <laughs> well, listen to you. No, it, it <laughs> could get worse. It could get worse. And it will get worse before it gets better. But basically, I think we are confronting a fairly important fork in the road. Either rational, technocratic solutions that actually work can be negotiated by all the various stakeholders and implemented in a competent way to diffuse the real problems that people face, whatever they are. Or we can just sort of, as they say, kick the can down the road, which will at some point end up blowing up the system. I mean, those are typically systems either get reformed or they become so irrational and so dysfunctional that they're just thrown overboard and people have to rethink the whole thing from the start. The free college movement, the loan forgiveness movement are very serious indications that while we may not have hit bottom, we're kind of getting close here because people are just not having it anymore. I've been hearing people make the argument that we're headed towards some sort of collapse or bubble in this space. And I don't necessarily believe it's true. I mean, to me, I see kind of things maybe heading off in the same trajectory that they've been on for a long time, continued tuition inflation, continued increases in borrowing. But what's the explosion? What's the bomb that you think is coming? What you see is a gradual decline of higher education at exactly the same point as it is costing so much more. You know, I keep reading about the emergence of China as a both economic and potentially military threat to the United States. And certainly when you think about competitiveness, just leaving all the equity issues, the internal debate within the country about equity and racial justice and all of those very critical topics aside, from an external point of view, certainly higher education is a fairly elemental component of any kind of national competitiveness and any kind of military might for this country. And look around you, what we're seeing, since, particularly since the advent of Grad Plus, is a proliferation of, in my judgment, and look, this is an observer's take, there's no trig problems here that I can demonstrate my point of view to you, but what I see is a proliferation of highly dubious money-making online graduate programs that not only costs a fortune, 40% of the volume now being driven by graduate debt, but it also really diminishes the value of real graduate education with which we are going to be competitive, with which we're going to build F-35s. Not the stuff on the web. That stuff, you know, some of it is good. Most of it is just sheepskin effect that is now creating a vortex of abuse that is sucking in not only the regular bottom feeders in higher ed, but our finest institutions spinning off. And, and the reason they're doing it, again, this gets very macro level, very holistic, but it has to do with the defunding of the public sector and the gradual sort of privatization of higher ed. It has to do with the fact that higher education really has no cost control mechanisms, whatever it intakes is not enough because the search for excellence is eternal and unlimited. And I think these are warning signs and they are significant problems that are observable. It's not a matter of whether you come from one side or the other. You don't need to have a cataclysmic view about things are bad. It doesn't mean I don't think anybody's going to die. 
But I do think that we are seeing a diminution of higher ed and a cost escalation that even by the grandiose American standards are significant, right? I mean, by the time you're hitting $1.8 trillion of outstanding debt, I mean, that's not chump change. That is a meaningful figure, even in the context of the American economy and the US government's budget. Yeah, I think that's a thoughtful take. Like my lens on this issue is often looking at the individual level and saying, does someone end up better or worse off from engaging with this system that we call higher education? And as long as we can make sure that we have done no harm to them, I'm kind of, you know, saying, okay, great, let's move on with our day. But I think it's fair. That's not unreasonable. I think the problem is the tyranny of averages, right? I mean, you know, the Potomac River is on average three feet deep. Doesn't mean you step off the pier in K Street, you could sink. I think there is enough pain and enough depredation and cost inflation within the system to create plenty of folks who are really in trouble. Now, there are plenty of people for whom it was the best investment, it worked out fine. And, you know, typically, of course, those are people with the social capital to navigate the system. So in some ways, and and that's a real worrisome thing for me from a social point of view, you want higher education to ameliorate the tendencies of capitalism and capital accumulation in the hands of the wealthy. You don't want it to amplify that. And increasingly, it seems to me like we have a system that tends to victimize and or shortchange the very folks for whom higher ed is really the only way out of a lifetime of poverty and economic difficulty. Right. And looking at averages, that subtlety is not lost on me. And it's why I advocate for an expansion and the shoring up of safety nets. But the insight that I, I really appreciated there was this question of if we step back and think about at a macro level, the resources, time and energy that we are devoting to this practice of education after high school, is it delivering for our country in terms of international competitiveness or even domestic quality of existence? I think that's an interesting question too, sort of beyond the scope of my economic tools, but that's what makes it kind of fun to think about. So we'd like to finish the show on more of a practical note and had a really great conversation here on the policy side of things. But my question is, as you're thinking about the near term for the people who are aspiring to go to college the next few years or already in college, there's so much noise about what's happening in higher education, the crisis that's looming in higher education. What do they need to know? What do they need to be worried about or not worried about? Very hard to give individual advice given the diversity of participants in higher ed and 18-year-olds' expectations and what may be right for them could be very different than what you would tell a working adult that, you know, who wants to go to college or go back to college at age 40, different places in life, et cetera, et cetera. But in general, it seems to me that we are overemphasizing, certainly for the traditional age population, the college experience as a mechanism for socialization at the expense of substantive academic gain. So you know, my advice generally to anybody who cares to listen would be that what we want for ourselves, for the country as a whole, is probably, this should resonate with you, we should probably want the most high quality, most Spartan higher education experience we can get. Because while having sushi in the cafeteria is great and having the collegiate sort of the comprehensive collegiate residential experience may be wonderful, those are good things to have unless you are financing it with lifelong debt. 
that it's much, much better to be focused on the substance of the thing before you get into the trappings of it that have been bundled together. And the old line, I think it was Jim Barksdale of Netscape, who used to say there are two ways to make money in life, bundling and unbundling. We want to probably unbundle a lot of the stuff that folks assume have to kind of go with higher ed and focus on the core function, because that's where the substance of both the cultural and the economic impact will be. Right. I'm so glad I asked that question because I really do love that answer too. So (laughs) (laughs) thanks for that. And thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I appreciate the invitation. It was a fun conversation. If you enjoyed the conversation and you want to learn more, please subscribe to the show and also check out my new book. It's called Making College Pay and is available right now on Amazon. Have any comments, questions, or topic suggestions for me? It would be great to hear from you. You can send me a note from my website, bethacres.com, and find me on Twitter at Dr. Beth Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.